You are listening to the Enormo Cast. The Royal We here at the Enormo Cast want you, dear listener, to know that while making some of the best and most reliable climbing gear in the world, Black Diamond is also supporting the climbing community in many bold and generous ways. Of course, Black Diamond supports big players like the Access Fund, but also littler crews like the Salt Lake Climbers Alliance. That support can look like wads of cash, amplifying an org's messages, lobbying politicians, or taking stands against billion-dollar boulder-destroying gondola projects. Basically, it's Black Diamond pushing their weight around to protect access. And the climbers at BD have not just talked the talk with BIPOC climbers, but partnered with Climbers for Change to offer Jim DeCraig grants to underserved communities. They have joined with the AMGA to offer SPI and Rock Guide scholarships that include door-to-door funding for participants. BD also supports other affinity groups, including Memphis Rocks, the Adaptive Climbing Group, and She Moves Mountains. And the environmental orgs they support are too many to list here. So if you want to know how the folks at Black Diamond are walking the walk for the community, go to blackdiamondequipment.com and search under About Us for more information on where they're helping out. And maybe make a suggestion or get involved yourself. Imagine a time before the Sportiva TC Pro. Before the solution, even, dare I say, before the Mira. It was a libidinous time of skin-tight lycra and the shortest shorts ever conceived. Meanwhile, Sportiva was already at the height of their powers even then. Imagine, if you will, Ron Kauk flexing in his blue and fuchsia megas. Francois Legrand floating in his ridiculously tight kendos. And Heinz Mariocker, um... Mariockering and his Mariockers. Now, Sportiva is celebrating those heady years with a revival of their Climbing to the Moon logo and a special limited edition TX4 approach shoe in the fantastic colors that defined an era. The TX4 remains legendary for both its ruggedness and its climbing power. And now, Sportiva is building the TX4 on a resolvable platform to get even more life from your favorite approach shoe. So check out all of Sportiva's decades of innovation at Sportiva.com or your local shop and step to the moon in a pair of better-than-ever retro TX4s. Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? Are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, the big place. That's, it out. That's a big nice. place. You sold it out. I'll see. really should. The hell are you doing? couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a frayed end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Good weather. Bad weather. No, later. Anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Time and Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And now, we can also thank the chill folks at Yeti. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Normo at checkout to get a great deal on great coffee and to support the Cast. And now, back to the show. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is October 24th, 2023, about 11 a.m. here in Colorado, and this is episode 273 
of the Enorma cast. There, I took a breath. Return guest, alpinist, rock climber, big mountain skier, Brett Harrington. Yes, Brett Harrington is returning to the Enorma cast several years since her first appearance, episode 119 from December 2016. But more importantly, she's lived sort of a lifetime in those few years, which is what we get to on this podcast. If you go back to listen to that one, it's kind of amazing how much she's changed. I think it's probably better to listen to it afterwards, after this one, to hear the change. But uh, also, it's kind of amazing how much I've changed and the Enormacast has changed. I had a completely different voice back then. I don't know if that was my real voice and now I'm faking, or maybe this is my real voice and I was faking it back then. Somewhere I was faking, or maybe it just changed. I don't know. I'm glad you guys have stuck with me as long as some of you have through all those changes. I hear about the changes. Some people don't like the changes. I didn't plan on changing. The changes were very organic, whatever they were. All right? Just happened. Just like growing up. This podcast grew up. My life too has changed drastically in the last 13 years. Just go with it. Okay, in other news, our local climbing gym, the Monkey House, closed. I don't know why exactly. Financial problems, not enough climbers here to support a gym. I don't know. But what I do know is I'm growing weaker, more decrepit by the second. What am I going to do? There's no gym within 45 minutes to an hour of my house, and that's like that's a long ways for a dad to disappear to a gym on a regular basis. So... I need a favor. I want you guys to send me your favorite core workout that's online somewhere. Okay? Send me your favorite one if there's a YouTube person out there that does some core busting thing that I can do in my basement on my floor. I have a TRX that can help, but I don't have any other apparatus besides a hangboard. So, apparatusless core workout. That's what I'd like. Plus it'd be great if I, you know, didn't have to spend hours doing it. You know what I'm looking for. Okay, no one can spend hours doing a core workout. I mean, maybe Magnus does. I don't know. <laughs> All right, so yeah, send me that. Save me from my decrepitude. I think my core is going to help my crack climbing, and I'm interested in crack climbing this winter. I think that's more important than hanging off some sort of weird crack machine. Just working out your core. Though I did order a couple little crack hang blocks from uh, Danny Parker. He makes these things. Point fives, baby. Why hang on anything else? My hand jams are fine. I don't need to hang on hand jams. (laughs) Even upside down. All right. I asked Brett Harrington to come back on the show because I thought that a great deal has happened in her life in the intervening six or seven years since she was on the show the first time. Not only has she grown older and matured like healthy people do, but of course, we know from seeing the alpinist or just paying attention to climbing that Brett Harrington was the romantic and climbing partner of Marc-Andre Leclerc, who passed away in 2018. And I was curious about her recovery from that. Also curious about what it was like to put that out into the world. So obviously, as far as the Alpinist, the movie is concerned, what effect that had on her. Also, when I talked to her in 2016, she was mostly just a rock climber. And since then, she's become one of the best alpinists out there, certainly one of the best female alpinists out there. We sort of talk about whether that distinction matters to Brett in the interview. 
But yeah, so much has gone on. She's gone on to do big climbs. She's gone on to fail on some big climbs, which is in some ways more interesting story. She's also re-upped her love of big mountain skiing. So yeah, a lot of changes in Brett's life, and I wanted to find out what was going on with her. And to my delight, she agreed to come on and gave this excellent, excellent interview. This one's good core Enormacast stuff. No training tips, no real beta about a climb, just good stories and deep thoughts from Brett Harrington. But before we get to that, we have a little message from my boy Yonder. Well, howdy, folks. It's me, your Yeti Yonder water bottle. And I hope you don't mind me woodshedding some of these tasty blues riffs while we talk. Now, you might be thinking, well, golly, Yonder, you play guitar too? You're the most amazing water bottle I've ever laid my thirsty eyes upon. And while it's true, I am amazing. It's not my guitar chops that get me there. It might be my convenient and clippable handle. It might be that I come in several sizes, but I'm betting it's my two holes that make me amazing. I got a big hole for filling and a small hole for swilling. And that big hole means you can drop in your drink mix, ice, or whatever other special potion you think might get you to the chains. Also, when you forget about me in your pack for three weeks, it makes cleaning the scuzz out that much easier. And then, the small hole means you can enjoy splash-free guzzling after that particularly cotton-mouth-inducing lead you just sent, you sick bird. Check me out and all the amazingly well-built and innovative products at Yeti.com or a fine outdoor retailer near you. And tell them Yonder sent you. No, seriously, try that and see what kind of looks you get. All right, boys, let's take them out of here. One, two, three. I texted you last night that said I was going to do a little trip down memory lane and uh and listen to your original Normacast, which is from 2016 um so quite a long time ago not the earliest it was like 119 i think episode 119 so you know i'd hit my stride a little bit although it was funny to go back and listen to something from that long ago i ambushed you in grand junction colorado so you were gearing up for something with mayan smith gobat it was back when the Normacast did everything face to face which i'm astounded by to this day that I, I did that for a little over 200 episodes. But yeah, I'd like to kind of reflect a little bit on that time in your life and, and who you were. It was doesn't seem like that long ago, I guess. In our long lives, that may not seem like a ton of time, but I think to you and, and to your life since then, it's it could be 50 years and, and sort of like what's gone on in your life since then. So I think you were 24 at the time. So do you have any reflection on on that time yeah. in your life and, and who you sort of were as a climber? So at that point in time, I was gearing up to go climb Riders on the Storm for the first right. time with Mayan, and I was so fired up. I had been climbing in the valley that fall, and so it was December when I met you in Grand Junction, and we were heading to Chile in January. And so like energy was super high. I was super psyched to be meeting Mayan and going on this huge adventure to climb this big wall. And I really didn't have very much fear or hesitation when it came to climbing back then. It took a lot for me to be intimidated by an objective. 
So we went down to Chile and we really battled so hard on this wall. And it was some of the most impressive climbing I felt I've ever done because I was totally out of my element. The wall was iced up the entire time and it's hard 512 rock climbing, but we were climbing it in our mountain boots with ice tools and doing all these technical aid moves with like our ice tools on delaminating ice. It was a really extreme journey and we were just battling storms for five weeks. But I feel like our psyche going into that trip was really strong. And so we didn't succeed with the objective, but mentally it got me even more fired up to progress with alpinism. After that, I went back to Canada and I pretty much focused on alpinism for the next three years and went really hard. I ended up moving to the Canadian Rockies, spending, I spent the entire time of COVID just living out of the Canadian Rockies and alpine climbing. Alpine climbing transitioned into alpine skiing and like ski mountaineering. And so I had a couple years hardcore alpinism and then I like transitioned into interesting ski descents with my friend Christina. So I've, yeah, I think that trip to Chile really fired that in in me. And then I've kind of done a full circle because now I've like been rock climbing since 2021. I haven't gone back into the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I was going to bring that up is that um, I was, you know, doing my research. Actually, I, I did I did a fair bit to try to catch up and find out. I mean, kind of prepare for this question in a way is like, well, what has happened? you know, since, since then. And, uh, your Wikipedia, which I don't know who runs that. Um, I have one too. Uh, just, I've, I recently learned. Um, but yeah, it actually, your, your significant ascents on the Wikipedia stop in, in 2021. So I was like, huh, I wonder, I wonder what she's been up to, but maybe your, whatever fan was running that site, maybe gave up on it for you or something, but, um, it needs an update is all I'm saying. It probably does. But since 2021, I guess I went back and I freed El Cap again at El Corazon. And then I went into this really hard route in Sardinia called Mezzogiorno di Poco. And pretty much I've been like battling injuries and just like up and down failures since December of last year. So. Okay. Well, let's let's pause yeah. that. Um, I want to go back to the original kind of line of thinking so you would say before that you were a rock climber i mean you you know to fill in we we talked all about your life on that and people should go back and listen to it if they want to hear about brett's earlier life because we probably won't get into that you were a professional skier and you know but had, i wasn't had, professional <laughs> I oh come on professional. <laughs> <laughs> no right. way okay, i was so, like mediocre but okay. in my like I, I wanted to be a professional. Okay. There's no way. <laughs> All right. So you were not professional yet. Come on. Somebody must have been giving you sunglasses or something, right? No. No. Not even no sunglasses. No way. I was like a yeah, amateur. Okay, then you weren't very mediocre good, no, skier. <laughs> <laughs> I started Are, skiing early on, and it was right. like my life passion. Mm-hmm. I just loved it so much mm-hmm. as a child. But yeah, no, I was never like good enough. Well, and also, you know, you sustained some some serious injuries. I'm just kind of pulling this out from listening to it last night, but a broken neck, traumatic brain injury, uh, some things that that maybe curbed your enthusiasm or at least 
the possibilities for you, but um, somewhere in there found rock climbing. But would you have characterized yourself more as a rock climber? Were you a pure rock climber um, before heading down to to uh, Patagonia on that trip in 26, or it probably would have been in 2017? Yeah, for sure. Rock climbing was my main passion at that time. I started full-time rock climbing in 2014, and that's when I joined Arcteryx. So Arcteryx, I was also going to school in, in uh, Vancouver, but rock climbing as much as possible. And then, um, I guess, yeah. So for the consecutive two years, I was just rock climbing before I went to Chile. I think you had just been on El Corazon. So you went back, what, seven years later and did it. Sounds like, or six years later and, and to free it up. Is that right? Yeah. Getting that timeline right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, I mean, I don't know about the time, like years, but but I did in 2021. Right. So it burned in your it, it it was stuck in your craw that 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 needed to be freed which was an interesting um idea for me because i'd just been climbing in in the rockies and like alpine climbing and i felt like i'd really lost touch with rock climbing which was sad for me cuz rock climbing is my favorite thing to do but living in canada you really like if you don't alpine climb you don't really climb because the the rock climbing season is so short but then i'm I just left Canada in May of 2021, came down to Yosemite. This is kind of a funny story. I met Anna Pfaff, who had just come off of the shoulder surgery. So Anna was like, let's um, just climb in the Sierra. And then we end up in Yosemite spontaneously with no big wall gear. And <laughs> we're like, well, I had this project from 2016 on El Corazon. Do you want to go try it? And so she and I decide to like borrow all this big wall gear and just go on a light and fast mission up El Corazon. And then our friend Elliot, who I didn't I didn't know at the time, Elliot ends up joining us as a team of three. And I end up leading and I hadn't climbed Big Wall in four years. And I end up leading the whole thing because that was Anna had shoulder surgery and Elliot wasn't really leading on El Cap at that time. And so it went pretty well until day two and our portal edge broke and El Corazon is super steep. And so <laughs> our portal edge fully broke while I was on it. The bar snapped. It was a prototype that we'd borrowed from a friend. <laughs> He'd been using all year and nothing had happened. And it was like the point of failure was when Anna and I were on it. And so I like <laughs> drop out of the sky. It's not and get like caught you guys are large. It's not like you're super heavy or anything. It's just yeah. been ready. Yeah, exactly. He thinks that the frame was just getting worn out and it was like about that time. And so I just like end up dropping out of the sky. My daisy chain catches me and I like grab onto Elliot. And um, then we're just hanging in space. We it was getting dark and there was (laughs) nowhere to sleep. So we jug up. I had a fixed rope above. We jug up to the top of our rope and there was a micro ledge, barely big enough for Anna to just like get her bum on. And she just slept in a curled up position on this tiny ledge. Elliot had his own single ledge. And then I slept in the hammock of the broken ledge. And then we expedited our mission. And I climbed like seven pitches of chimneys the next day. <laughs> just like firing. It was really cool. You know when something wrong goes, happens on a climb, you like tap into a different part of your mind and you become like a super human? I felt like I was kind of in that headspace of just like charging. And so 
Then we slept on Tower of the People, which is six pitches below the sum or below the summit the next night. And that night I slept in the single ledge and I slept again on just like the rock, the slanting rock. And Elliot slept underneath the single ledge, holding on on this like sloping rock face that was about to like <laughs> you just like holding onto my ledge all night. And uh yeah, we talked all the next day. It was a really good um reintroduction to big wall climbing for me. And so I was like, oh man, this is this is really great. And it boosted my confidence. And so we went back and Elliot came back with me in I wanna say it was like late October, early November. And we well, I freed it in 13 days. We got caught in a mega storm, another like really funny story. But yeah, freed it, which was sweet. Yeah, and that's the video uh, on uh, on YouTube, right? Did you watch that it? Ascent? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> sweet. Yeah, I think it's the first one up. I got that deep, maybe two more deep, but um, but yeah, I mean, in the storm, like Nar, you guys got hammered yeah. up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was full on waterfall. Our portal edge was filling with water, and we were bailing water all night. I was worried the fabric was gonna rip, and we would lose all of our like sleeping stuff, but. Just bailing water helped <laughs> keep it. My hands were so water saturated for the next two days. They just looked like wrinkly prunes. Wow. But you guys, ma you managed to free it anyway. I did. Yeah. yeah. I was, I think I lost a bunch of weight. We were, uh, <laughs> we <Perfect>. were rationing, <laughs> <laughs> you know, my strength to weight ratio was starting right. to get better. <laughs> it's like you got a ton of, you got a ton of, of uh, extra baggage there to get rid of too brett i'm sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's not like you're a big person in in the in any way shape or form so you definitely like, though like yeah i felt like i yeah there was that pitch the a5 traverse and i felt super powerful on it and it could have been either just like the adrenaline from the past couple of days or like yeah i, I did feel pretty light <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, mm -hmm. it's it's interesting to listen to you say that because I, I know that sort of feeling sometimes that you can you can kind of have this lull and then even like on a 24 hour type climb or, a you know, one that you go through the night, I always do feel like this weird surge once it's almost like once you've stopped worrying about it or something or like, you know, you're rushing to finish or you're rushing to keep on your schedule. And once that's blown apart. Like you let it go and you and you get this moment or these few hours or in your case, maybe a couple of days of superpower. Um, yeah. It's sort of fascinating. It's kind of like the yeah. survival mode, do you think? Mm -hmm. Like when you're just like, oh, okay, well, we'll just use every trick we've got, improvise and like just like streamline your focus. and. Oh, yeah. The yeah. focus is really it. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's it's some like, yeah, it's some primal thing that's happening. I mean, it's it ta like, look suffering up on a wall whether whatever it happens to be you know it's something we joke about like constantly in climbing like why do we do it why do we force ourselves to suffer the type two fun joke you know that's that's a meme through climbing but that's really it isn't it it's it's like to tap into those places is revelatory in some ways um it feels good i think it does anyway when you 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 suddenly have this this weird power that you didn't have a little while ago um, but it also tells you something about like what you can do and what you can survive and what you can get after. Yeah, for sure. It's pretty cool. I think those moments like build your confidence in yourself and maybe sometimes they don't. If you go the other way, like if you're in a 
bad headspace and you enter into no, one of those moments, you could definitely drop down the the dark side. But I think one of the things that that is probably distinctive about alpinists who continue, you know, to to be able to do that is is some yeah is is that maybe the you're on the teeter totter and your tendencies are to go to go towards the the sort of power feeling and and forget about the rest of it because i mean that's isn't that also the joke is that you have to have this sort of short-term memory loss to to keep going back into the mountains uh in a lot of ways and it's like the mental preparation you put in beforehand builds up this um like a a sink of um, room so that when something does go wrong you have a buffer but if you go into an objective kind of like ill-prepared and not really like strongly passionate about it then you don't have so much um what is that word i'm looking for where there's like a a buffer is the only thing i can think right of. just um yeah resilience um i don't know could, resilience could be framed in a, few, in a bunch of different ways yeah so I, it's interesting too because i like kind of clued into this uh moment of like having tried el corazon and then years later you know, getting up there and doing it. And, and we're talking about like these suffering moments, both on the, the sort of reconnaissance and, and the, the time that you freed it. But in between that time, you know, the alpine climbing and, and even that initiation down on um, Riders on the Storm happened, you know, and I'm just thinking about like, well, the discomforts that you run into on a big wall ascent in El Cap, you know, in Yosemite and in the in the weather of the eastern sierras or the sierras in that case you know are are pale in comparison to the discomforts of alpine climbing so i kind of imagine a brett that shows up that second time uh you know with all these tools that again make being on a big wall seem pretty luxurious compared to even that riders on a storm ascent not to mention you know the 5 years of intervening Rockies climbing, which is, you know, notoriously scary, sufferfest kind of climbing up there in the Rockies. That's why you went there, and so I think, and it's also why people in a lot of cases avoid it. And I also spend a bunch of time in Alaska, and I think that style of climbing demands hard work work ethic. No matter what type of alpine climbing you're doing, you're gonna have to carry super heavy bags, you're gonna have to pull hundreds and hundreds of ropes, flake a bunch of ropes, then like set all the rep- – it's just like super involved, super committing. And so you are you really have to dive in deep when you're doing any type of big alpine wall. So going up El Cap felt pretty nice. I mean, we, we decided to take our time. To, we scheduled in rest days into our – a sense and we knew that the storm was coming and so we set our ledge on tower of the people and we thought it would just be like an overnight storm and then it ended up turning into a waterfall so the water was literally just pouring into our tent so it ended up actually like getting pretty scary for a little bit but yeah all in all there was very little amount of suffering besides the amount of food that we had <laughs> <laughs> the the lack of the amount of food that you had um that riders on the storm, you know, you, you talked a little bit about a minute ago about like this initiation into a sort of different world. Um, I mean, psychologically, you know, I think you've been through some stuff at that point, again, some injuries, uh, within the, the skiing world. Um, 
you know, but were you like, how did you react to, you know, the, the sort of troubles you ran into on that ascent? And was that kind of revelatory for you as, as who you were as a partner? Um, you didn't know Mayan, right? I mean, you knew of her and you guys met just beforehand. Um, so tell me a little bit about like your tools that maybe you discovered on there for, for suffering. Um, but also, you know, a bit of disappointment, um, or looking at, you know, heavy, heavy workload loads, um, looking at fear. Tell me a little bit about that trip and, you know, your, your times on the portal edge and the, in the, in the moments of, you know, facing what you guys were facing. I think at that point I hadn't really found my limitations and I was still seeking them. So I, I was really pushing myself pretty hard doing some really committing pitches. Some of those pitches we were climbing were like in our mountain boots, no protection because it was covered in snow and like some really, really delicate aid climbing with your ice tools. And it was just like super mentally engaging and I feel like I was firing kind of in that headspace of what I was talking about when our portal edges broke. It was like tapping into that survival instinct of using every skill you've got to keep ascending. And we had to keep revising our ultimate goal because the ultimate goal was to try and free climb the whole thing via the variation that she had discovered the year before. And then with all the poor weather that we had, it was really just like to get to those crux pitches and see if they went and try and free the unfreed pitches and we did it we like made it all the way up there through all the storms we had like one and a half days to try and free these pitches she and i did all the moves on the crux pitch but we didn't actually free it and then i ended up finding a variation to one of the pitches she found that worked better for me it was a full-on stem corner which was awesome because i love stemming and that went free also, but I didn't, yeah, we didn't really get the chance because as soon as I ended up managing to free it, then um, a storm blew in again and covered the entire thing in ice. So then the next day I was going to try and like lead it from the bottom up. So I only freed the stem corner. I didn't free the slap going into it. And then it totally froze over in ice. And so I was up there like chiseling the ice off. And I was so devastated because I knew it was going to go down that day. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. We shouldn't we shouldn't keep pushing on this climb because the obviously the weather was fighting so hard against us. It was just not the year. So we ended up bailing at that time after five weeks of trying to get we only got 16 pitches up, but five weeks of just like really challenging technical winter climbing so characterize just the idea of making that final decision i mean uh, i mean I, I would say i've i've had you know nothing near as you know committed as that um but but pulling the plug at times can be this incredible relief and i instantly as soon as we decide it's like oh god perfect we're out of here like and then other times it's it's you know, something that I'm like, I think about even for weeks, hell, sometimes years afterwards, like, gosh, should we have pulled the plug? So where did you lie on that? Um, those decision making? And did you have days of not talking? Or were you able to sort of make the switch and start to think about getting out of there? I think both of us were done. We were just like, we've 
given it our very best efforts and the weather literally would not allow us to move any further. Like we did everything we possibly could to get to the point that we had and the storms were blowing in again. Although I don't really think we had much more time. We'd already been there five weeks. And so I think like at that point, Sean, Nico and Siba had arrived and they were going to start up the wall and they battled storms for the first like week or so but then mine and I leave and then they persevered and managed to climb this I think it was Moro La Mora Mora or something like that yeah so they ended up topping out that wall which was awesome but they also hadn't been suffering for five weeks like us so I think we were okay with it and we set plans to go back the next year both mine and I but weather wasn't looking good and we decided to change tactics and then Mayan ended up um, just changing a bunch of her life patterns and started riding courses a lot. And so she kind of fell out of climbing. And I went back to Riders on the Storm last year <laughs> with Siva and Jacopo, which is an awesome team. These two are like total crushers. And I thought, yeah, we have a really good chance of succeeding. But immediately, we ran into the first challenge, which is the glacier. The glacier is in horrible condition, worse than I've ever seen any glacier in my life. It was cascading in huge avalanche fractures. At one point, we saw one that was like 200 meters wide of just glacier collapsing. It was super, super dangerous, and we had to cross this glacier every time we wanted to get to the wall. And I could hear it creaking and I've climbed a bunch of glacier ice and so I know what it sounds like when it's about to release. So right away I told them I'm like this is so dangerous. If this goes, it's going to go big and it would take us all down and pour us into the lake down below and crush us. So at one point I could uh hear it cracking around us and we we're on this tiny little rock rib. It's the smallest rock rib on the whole um sloping moraine field and then I heard it cracking and I was like, it's breaking. And so Siba and I run to the lip of this arete and it fractures at about like a size of a a large truck right around Chris. You know Chris Alstron? Chris was with us. And so it fractures right around him and it broke into two pieces, one on each side of him and slid down. Jacopo was down there. And so Jacopo ran down and got out of the way, but we were super lucky that it was only a small piece that broke off. And at that point, everyone else was like, okay, this is really serious. We should not be on this glacier. And so we scamper across and get to the wall because we were closer to the wall than we were to base camp at that point. And then we started up the wall because all of our stuff was already there. And over the course of two days of climbing, we just watched this glacier just completely collapse. And it was really intimidating knowing that we were going to have to cross back over the glacier. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. And so we were out there for two days and we had crazy storms. And also we'd been there for a couple of weeks. The weather had been really, really bad again. But um, <laughs> I just have pretty bad luck with Tori's Opine, I guess. And so... um. We're up there and storms are just hitting us super hard and there's no foreseeable forecast. It just says every time we check the forecast, it's getting worse and worse and worse. And so it's going to be like three weeks of major storms. And this was our only opportunity to bail. 
and we had 600 meters of ropes fixed. And so Steve, uh, Steve was like, okay, Jacopo, you can go first and make sure the ropes are all like well rigged to descend. And then Chris and I will carry most of the haul bags. And then Brett, you can derig. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to derig the entire 600 meters while you guys zip down on fixed lines. <laughs> Great. Like, and I was take like, another vote. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, I lost again. <laughs> I know what that entails. Like to derig even 200 meters of rope take a ton of time. And I'm derigging static ropes that are really cold and iced over, core shot. They're fixed on single bolts here and there, like left and right. It's just like, it's not, they're not equalized anchors at all. And so I'm doing all these crazy rope systems to like, just descend and I'm using my ATC and the ropes are getting heavier and heavier and heavier as I descend. And each time I have to like recoil, it took me eight hours to derig the entire mountain. And well, no, we were only 600 meters up, but I get to the glacier and the three of them are waiting for me. (laughs) And they said that they had tried to cross while I watched them. I was like, trying to map out where they should cross the glacier while I was up on the wall. We had radios. So I was like calling down to them, okay, jump over this crevasse and then jump over that crevasse. And they ended up bailing and my radio died at that point. And so I couldn't really tell them where to go. And so they waited for me till I got down and then we all crossed together. And what they said was when they had tried to cross without me, they could feel this deep rumbling from deep within the glacier. And they felt like at least 100 meters of glacier was like about to slide. They could feel it sliding under the pressure of their bodies. And so they retreated to the wall and then we were fully stuck. And like, what are we going to do? Wait to get a heli rescue? Because there's really no helicopters out there. And there was not really an option to get a rescue and so we just waited till it felt like it was temps were dropping we waited a long while and then crossed in the coolest hours and survived the glacier (laughs) so anyway it's been this like big thing in my mind this route that just i've tried twice now i've had the first year of terrible, terrible weather, the second year of really bad weather, but also just terrible conditions on the glacier. So now I'm like, should I go back? Maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. Mm-hmm. I mean, the glacier's not going to get any better. It's getting worse every right. year. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of things to do in this life, Brett. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that one is, it might yeah, have escaped no. me. It got me. Right. Well. Yeah, it happens. I'm glad that you're, you know, that you guys all walked away from that. Um, it's an interesting tale. I mean, it's interesting how a story like that is is all as riveting as is topping out as sending the route. And um, I hadn't really heard that before. I mean, I know there was some problems and and the conditions were bad just from sort of the post reports. But and you should really be able to put that derigging on your 8a.nu card somehow because. <laughs> I mean, that's a feat of strength that's like... In a storm. It was fully right. storming on me too. And I'm just derigging this whole thing. Yeah. You know, and look, uh, to give you props, there's a, there's parties that would have just said, F it. We have our excuse to leave this up here, the glacier or whatever. Um, but, you know, the fact that you guys went ahead... Well, sorry. The fact that you <laughs> went ahead and stripped it is is props to you. It certainly was enough of an emergency situation that you'd have an excuse to be like, yeah, we couldn't, 
we couldn't take the ropes down for fear of our lives, but you did anyway. So, so props to you. Actually, Siva called up to me on the radio at one point. And he's like, there's some old fix lines up there. Would you mind grabbing those too? <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? I tried, but it was, I was so weighed Sorry, you're down. breaking up. You're breaking <laughs> yeah. up. I can't, I couldn't hear that last part. <laughs> I had, and I was like clipping them all off. So like, I just had mass amounts of rope piling up on me and just like to do, I had to deweight myself every time I got to one of these single carabiners that I was, that was our anchor, a single carabiner on a single bolt. And so I had to clip everything off onto the bolt and then reclip it back onto me once I derigged the rope above. It was just crazy. Yeah. And like yeah. wet knots, like wet old knots are super easy to get undone too, mm -hmm. you know, on big, fat, gross static ropes. Perfect. And some of them were just so old and sticky and yeah, even repelling right. them was hard. Okay. I'll, yeah. Moving proud, on. proud, proud moments. <laughs> anyway, like I said, it, it's interesting to listen to somebody send hard pitches, but um, knowing what that entailed is like, I said, a feat of strength that um, you'll, you'll always remember. So <laughs> since I've talked to you, I've actually had some really interesting descents. More so, I mean, I wouldn't say more so than the ascents, but I climbed this mountain on the uh, Juno ice cap called uh, the Devil's Paw, and it was like 1,200 meters, and we did this big alpine ascent, but the face had never been climbed nor descended, and so we descended. I had like a handful of pitons and some nuts, and we just descended into the night. We topped out at 8 p.m., and it got to the bottom at 9 a.m. It took us 13 hours to descend throughout the night. It was really interesting, kind of crumbling, old, volcanic, glaciated rock. And so that was one of the more interesting descents I've done also. Yeah. And also descending Torrey Egger was pretty cool too. So I'd say those are my top three descents in the past Top three years. descents. That's a whole <laughs> nother podcast. Um, I think we should start. A descending podcast. Yeah, I mean, it, so let me ask you a little bit about, I have, I have a whole other line of questioning too, but you just threw this out there. Like, what, where, where are you with um, sort of compartmentalizing that risk and that fear when you're in those situations? I mean, I think it's a, a little bit probably akin to, you know, our little, our survival mode discussion from earlier, but, you know, okay, you're, you're descending this thing into the night you're intellectually, you know, a few things, you know, that the rock's shitty. Um, you know, that descents are notoriously risky pulling ropes, rock fall. You've climbed in Patagonia, you've seen or been close to the, the consequences of that kind of thing. So what do you do with the, with the risk and the fear compartment? Is it compartmentalized? Is it, do you just try to forget about it? What, where, where does it go when you descend down something like that or, or, or any, any situation where, Again, intellectually, you understand the risks. Yeah, it's kind of just how much prep work I put in beforehand, knowing that I'm going to have to do that descent. So I go into it with so much mental fortitude that I'm, I'm ready and almost excited. I was really excited for that descent. Like when we started down it, my partner wasn't as experienced with as I had been. Who, in the, like, who are you with? I was with Gabe Hayden. He's a, he's a really great Alaskan um, alpinist, and I've done a bunch of climbs with him. At that point, he hadn't done a big descent like that, and that was one of the bigger descents I've done in my life. But I was so motivated. Mark andre 
had given me a lot of inspiration. He was so good at descending and he was such a technical wizard when it came to like finding a little bird beak placements. And I, I think I had taken a lot of inspiration from Mark and his craftiness when it came to that. So I really wanted to just take on that challenge of descending into the night and being really efficient with it, but also super safe and keeping my mind alert the whole time was was a really, really interesting kind of like thought experiment too. just seeing how I could push myself in that regard. Well, it's fascinating. You know, descending is famously uh, dangerous in the sense that we, we've always talked about how, you know, you get to the top and, and maybe have a tendency to let your guard down in some cases or, or think you're, you know, if you're not done, you're, you're three quarters done, even though you're maybe less than halfway done, depending on how arduous the ascent, the descent is. So it's interesting to hear you almost like reset, um, you know, to be like, okay, next challenge. And I've been thinking about this part of the challenge as much as the climb. We were pretty close to the top, maybe a couple hundred meters from the top. And Gabe was like, oh, it's getting to sunset. Should we start going down? And I'm like, no way. We're so close to the top. We're going to we're gonna top it out. So we topped it out at sunset. It was so cool. And then the first rappel was a full 60 meter overhang into this gully. It was so wild into this ice gully too. So like Gabe took a photo of me because he went first on that rap. And he took a photo of me and I've got the entire Juno ice cap behind me at sunset, like glowing and then just ice around and I'm like free hanging in space. It's, it was unbelievable. Yeah. So let's go back to the moments after, not moments, but um, the phase after Riders in the Storm, you said that that's when you like unleash the alpinist in you. So, you know, one thing I remember thinking when we met and did that first interview is that just walking into the room, I'm like, and after doing the interview, I'm like, I bet you people underestimate this woman on occasion. Um, like I've been saying, you're not, you're not a big person. Um, you know, you have a distinct voice, you know, you're, you're blonde. If that means anything anymore. Um, it, it used to kind of be that, that meme of like feminine or whatever. So what was your, you know, reception into the world of, of NAR Alpine climbing up there in the Canadian Rockies. Was it colored by your gender or maybe again, people underestimating you or, or was it sort of open arms and, and uh, what did it feel like to, to stand up and say, I want to do these gnar roots with these heavy reputations that I think a lot of those alpinists up there hold very dear. You know, they, they like the fact that everybody thinks it's, and it is super gnarly, you know, it's a, and it's also, also changed a bit, but it's a boys club. Yeah. Um, alpinism still is a boys club. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I I had the best luck because I was with Mark, Andre. And Mark, he, it wasn't a boys club for Mark. He knew who I was. Like we soloed together all the time and he knew my mind and I knew his mind. And we just got along super, super well. And so initially when we started doing bigger winter alpine climbs together, um, I think Ledge Mountain was the first one. and he led the cruxes, he led the descent at night, but he chose me as his partner. And he's like, well, why wouldn't I choose you? I know that you're going to be down. That was what he always said. I was always game to go on these things that I wasn't that experienced to do at the time. And then 
we progressively started doing bigger and bigger climbs. He had this big project on Mount Slessie. It was like his three-year project. And so that winter, Tom Livingston came out to try it. And so Tom came out and we had a base camp set up at the base of Mount Slessie that winter. Um, I think we went up there like eight times. And it's a pretty big ski tour to get in there. And I ended up climbing with Kieran, a friend of ours from Squamish. And I was the more experienced when it came to winter climbing with Kieran. So I was the leader. And I got to climb whatever ridges Mark would recommend or gullies. And it put me in the position of, like, leader, which was sweet. And then I got to lead the ascents and the descents. And Kieran was super psyched to be there. And Mark was climbing with Tom, but then progressively I started climbing more and more with Mark. Tom ended up leaving and then we ended up climbing all these incredible projects throughout the winter. Like he had big projects in the Rockies. And I remember that was then the winter of 2018. So it was like the transition from December, 2017 till winter, 2018 and in um, February, we were ticking off all of the projects that we'd been lining up. Like my biggest project at Slessie, he and I went up there and completed it. His project was Avi prone, so we bailed off of that. And then um, this huge ice climb that had never come in for 20 years, it hadn't reformed. And we went back and did the second ascent of it. It was really sweet. Like it just seemed like each day we were going to climb one of these big projects. and then. At the peak of that moment, I was going to go back to meet Mayan in Tasmania for two weeks to go rock climbing because she and I were still preparing to go back to Chile. And Mark went to Alaska for this like micro window. He goes up uh, to climb with Ryan Johnson and he and I were going to go meet after after he climbed in Alaska. We were going to meet at the Stikine Ice Cap and do some kite skiing on the ice cap up there. But he never returned from that trip. And so I was like, obviously, totally devastated, but I was still in this like, position where I wanted so badly to be in the mountains to keep alpine climbing with him like we were on a roll, we were just on fire. And so I just needed to do that. So I just kept doing that. I, um, I went hardcore into alpinism for the next two years. And that's when I did like, uh, life compass with rose and i climbed sound of silence on mount fay and i tried a bunch of routes that fit and i failed at them but yeah that was kind of my i just felt like really inspired and motivated to keep pushing what mark and i had built together i mean were people uh like giving you the opposite advice as far as like as far as that's concerned i mean it would it would seem natural i don't know if if you're close with your parents, if like to like calm down in the face of, of a, you know, something that happens like that, you know, Mark Andre doesn't come back. Yeah. So, I mean, was yeah. there, was there the opposite advice or um, did people see it as natural? No, everybody wanted, cause everybody fears for safety and that's a natural thing, but nobody knows what's right for you except for you. And at that point in time, I had no ability to listen to anybody else except for myself, which was actually a gift. And so I just fully ignored everything anybody could tell me because I had no other option. I was like single minded, just like I'm going into the mountains. I don't care what anybody says. And I needed it. I really needed it. 
And it was amazing for me, actually, like just to separate from all the grief and anxiety um, and just like focus on what's at hand, the task at hand and move step by step. I think it was really beautiful. And then potentially brought back those feelings of what I felt with Mark. And so it was kind of, um, I think it was good for me to process all of that through alpinism. Were were you careful at that time about about your partners in terms of just like finding the people who would understand maybe a little bit about your headspace or were you able to to convey that? I mean, again, it it seems like maybe people who knew you would be like, I don't know what she's up to out there. Like, you know, is she on a death wish? I mean, I'm sure that came up with people and stuff like that. So how did you sort of, vet your partners at that time or did you talk to them directly about about your headspace before going up on these projects well immediately i i just so after i was in juno for a couple weeks and then i went straight to pemberton to meet up with kieran kieran was i i mentioned him he was climbing with me on slessy just a really good friend of ours and and so kieran and i went up to pemby for two weeks and we just skied and kieran had this friend who had a dog named Pika and Pika, I just adored her. She lived with me and Mark when we were living in Squamish. And so like Pika came ski touring with us for those weeks. And it was just like a really good time to be with those two. She's not a person, but she's a dog, but she was really beautiful dog. And then I went to the Canadian Rockies and I was with Brandon Pullen and Brandon's also just a really, really good friend. He's He's got a heart of gold and he always hosts all these climbers. And there was this, the New Zealand Alpine climbing team was basically living at Brandon's apartment. And so I met this lady named Rose and yeah. And Rose was awesome. So cool and super smart. And she's also an engineer. I always like choosing partners who are engineers. You know that they're mathematically minded and like really thinking out all the decisions. And so I ended up teaming up with Rose and we did some really cool climbs together. We climbed on, up on the parkway, some routes by Andromeda. And then we went to try this mountain life compass. And she was also like in a similar headspace where she was just like ready to go. I had found this line in Kananaskis country while driving with Brandon one day and I asked Rose if she wanted to go try it. It had never been climbed before. So yeah, she and I went on this big, another like 40, no, probably 30 hour mission and we (laughs) succeeded with it. It was really cool. That descent was also really involved, but um, that was the last time I had actually climbed with Rose and we finished that route. But I think I was just lucky with my partners at the time. I, First, I had Kieran, then I had Rose, and then I don't really know what happened to me after that. Oh, I went back to Alaska, and then I <laughs> started climbing with Gabe, and I spent the rest of the summer in Alaska. So um, I, I just kind of passed by um, a relationship with your parents. I mean, do you have a good relationship with your parents still? I do, or, yeah, especially okay, yeah. now. Now right. I have a great relationship. Right. During that time, I didn't have a relationship at all. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Because I, I knew that they wanted me to come back to Tahoe and like I knew that they were worry, really worried. So I just mentally didn't have the capacity to like really engage with them 
and I knew what I needed as a person. And so I just went for it. And now I've, I'm living with them right now in Tahoe. And like, I see them every day. And yeah, we have a great relationship. Um, I've booked this, this interview with you. And then of course, I'm, you know, thinking about the Alpinist movie, and I'm thinking about uh, Mark Andre and how that fits into your life. And I, I started to wonder, you know, a like, okay, how am I going to bring it up? You, you know, we've we've just smoothly talked into it because of of you talking about climbing with with Mark Andre, and um, but I was thinking like, wow, this is something that's going to partially define you as a climber in people's in people's headspace, maybe forever. I mean, certainly in the last few years because of that film project. Um, how does how do you feel about that in terms of you know knowing that we're gonna come on this thing it's a nice you know we're an am morning talk here and then i'm gonna start talking about this you know tragic thing or or how you see it now um yeah how does that make you feel that this is this is sort of a defining moment for you and in your career no matter what you do going forward i guess i'm pretty realistic about it um it's just something that happened to me and something that happened to mark and naturally people will see that and watch the the film that came out and I don't really have much control over how that happens and plays out it's just like for me just the way life came into play that is a very defining moment in my life and all those years with Mark have really built who I am but the film itself it's interesting like moving forward, people still see me as Mark's partner. And I am in some regard, but I also like have an entirely different life. It's been five years. And so I've like kept going. And I know that's what Mark wanted for me. He even told me that. I remember him talking to me about it right when Hayden passed away, that if he passed away, he'd want me to keep living life and being myself. And that's something special that we had is that we loved each other so much that I like, I loved Mark beyond us being together. I, w- I would also want him to just fulfill his life. Yeah. So we, we really did have a really special bond. And so like now I'm, I'm with a, a new partner, Elliot. And I think it's kind of hard for Elliot because, like, people don't want to show Elliot. Like, even my sponsors, like, they don't want to film me climbing with somebody else because they relate that I should be solo or something like that. So that's kind of tricky. Wow. Yeah. That's yeah, because that's, that's not reality. Reality no. is, like, I'm actually just, like, living my life like a normal person. <laughs> right. It got framed very distinctly, you know, and that movie in particular was – you know, it broke away from the climbing scene. It went somewhat mainstream. People asked me about it, not on the level of free solo, but plenty of my relatives are, you know, saw it on the airplane or whatever. So it's, it's, it kind of got bigger, right? It got bigger and, and left climbing to a certain extent. And it's, yeah, so it's, it's fascinating how what you just said. I mean, I wouldn't, I guess I, I, I believe it, but wouldn't have thought it was quite so um, overt, this idea of, continuing to want to frame you as this again this sort of tragic figure this like romeo juliet almost story but yeah i mean that's in it it, like i can just even talking about i can feel like the weight of it in our psyche and how you're sort of i wouldn't go as far as say trapped in it but it's 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 like a, a framework where 
that you've not chosen, I think, in a lot of ways, I guess, is what I'm getting at. Yeah, like anybody in my inner circle or anybody that knows me knows like how I feel about it. And I'm really open about it because mm-hmm. I I know how important that entire time frame of my life was and still is to me. But I'm just like outliving my life. But I get so <laughs> many messages where people want to talk about grief with me. Mm-hmm. And I can't I can't do that. I can't I can't even really read them anymore because mm-hmm. I don't want that. I don't want to like constantly be like reliving this like really, mm-hmm. really tragic period of my life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. So here we are reliving <laughs> yeah. it. You're welcome. <laughs> well, actually we're just like more objectively talking about it. Sure. Instead sure. of like diving into like my emotions, which okay. that that would be something I think would be pretty hard for me. I don't like right. talking about that. All right. Yeah. That's more of a nighttime a normal cast vibe anyway not a morning <laughs> yeah. normal cast vibe um, emotions with Chris Caloose right exactly well Cli- I mean climbing you know, emotions it's like it, it's, it is good podcasting I'll admit but um, well let me let me ask you one more uh, 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 objective sort of question then is, is about the film you know one of the things that makes it distinct is that it was a project that started um, thinking just to highlight and to profile this you know, really interesting, you know, wild character in climbing. And of course, that's that's what those guys seek out. That's, I think, what makes good filmmaking. And and then it obviously took this turn in, in the middle of it. As far as your involvement in it, was was there a, a feeling of pulling the plug or at least walking away from your part in it, logistically speaking, um, when it when it all kind of went down that way? Mm, not so much, no, because I... I felt like I was so lucky to have spent all those years with Marc Andre and nobody knew what Marc was doing. I feel like I knew better than anybody. His partners, Luca Lindick, knew how capable and like advanced Marc was. Tom Livingston, just people who had actually climbed with him. I think like Colin Healy and Alex Honnold, these type of people understood. But nobody else really got it and so I felt like he kind of deserved that recognition because he was really doing something that was so outstanding and had no recognition so I was really happy and I I felt like it was good for the world to get to see how special he was yeah and it's kind of it's just sad that he didn't end up being able to see that himself but right he would have been too busy climbing anyway (laughs) <laughs> I mean, isn't that really the theme of the film? Yeah. Um, yeah. Did, did, you know, you're a, you're a soloist. And in fact, I think a part, another sort of defining moment as far as even just professional recognition was soloing Chiara de Luna in, in Patagonia was like, you know, as someone who watches the media, that was your burst, right? That's what puts you on the scene, so to speak, from a, just a, a good climber to this person people were noticing. But it, even being a soloist, did did you know we watched the film hear the scraping of the tools um i think he's on the stanley head wall like we all felt that visceral thing of like oh my god that we felt with freaking free solo you know like it, it it hit us emotionally even if we understood that he at that point survived that particular solo right we knew that but it still hit us like what did how did you feel about the level of soloing that he was doing when you were when you were partners with him 
Well, a lot of them I really understood. Like the first time he ever climbed on the Stanley Headwall was with me. And at that point, he'd never done any technical mixed climbing. And I had only done one day the day before with Michelle Cadets. Like I had no experience either. And we go up to try this M7 route. And Mark's like, well, you want to lead the first pitch? And I did. I, I don't know if I sent it or if I fell once or what. But I was like, okay, okay, I can I can understand this as a single pitch climb. And you're over snow. And then Mark climbed it, and then he was like, I bet I could solo that. And I, I was like, yeah, I bet you could too. And so we didn't send the line that day because there was this hanging dagger, and neither of us really knew if it was fully detached or not. And so we went back to Canmore, talked to the locals, and then went back a couple days later and climbed Nightmare on Wolf Street, the whole thing. And Mark led all the ice pitches because he was just so good at ice climbing. Like, he... He said ice climbing felt no harder than 510 ever for him. And so when he soloed that route on the headwall, I knew exactly what he was doing and it made sense to me. I knew how confident he was on pitch one, the M7 pitch, and I also felt like he was fully capable of it. And then the ice climbing, he's so confident with. I've ice climbed so much with him that it didn't really concern me. Egger. Egger was the one that I was feeling really nervous about. So he had gone down to Tori Egger to climb it. And he was nervous about going down there. He didn't really even know if he wanted to go. But I could tell it was like the third peak of the Tories. It was like the uh, final one. He'd been thinking about it for a couple of years. And I was like, Mark, you should go do it. Because you. I could tell he really wanted to. It, like deep inside and he would regret not going so he goes down but then I had this feeling of like oh no like what if a storm comes in I don't know I felt really weird about it and so I was in touch with our friend Ugo who was keeping me updated with the weather and actually Mark's first attempt which is shown in the movie he didn't succeed with and he got caught in this big storm and he descended uh, like something like 700 meters in a storm um, by himself and he got back to town and then went back and re-soloed it. And then he went back a third time to shoot it for the film. <laughs> but while he went back to shoot it, he climbed this other route called Titanic and freed Titanic. So he did the first free ascent of Titanic. And he found this line, er, of an option of like a variation to Titanic that he's like, you and I should go back and do this. It looks like an incredible free climb. And so in my mind, since 2016, that was when he did um, Egger, I was like, we should definitely go do it. But then he had the Slessy project, so we couldn't go back during winter because he was climbing Slessy. And eventually, so Mark passes away in 2018. I went back in 2019 to try that line on Tori Egger. I didn't have luck. My mountain boots fell off the first year, but we did free those pitches that Mark had envisioned. And so I was like, Halfway up Torreager, my mountain boots fall off the mountain, so we have to repel, and the window, weather window, failed on us, and so we left. But then I went back the following year, and we completed the line and linked it into Titanic. And climbing Titanic blew my mind. Thinking about Mark free-soling, or he wasn't free-soling the entire thing, but he free-soled the majority. And then he rope-soled some of the crux pitches. That was insane. Because you're so small on this huge mountain. And I was in there with two partners, Quentin and Horacio. And then there was like a ton of other climbers in the valley in their summer season. Mark was there in winter alone 
totally committed to this huge mountain. Like the level of commitment that took him to do that is something totally beyond me. I would feel so intimidated. Like what I was saying earlier about like before I went to Chile with Mayan, I didn't have very much intimidation. No mountain was really fearsome. But going to Egger with the imagination of trying to solo it is beyond my imagination. So that was incredible to see for myself what he really did there. And I know that same thing with Robson and like, yeah, I think Robson was on that same level. Mount Slessy, things like that are just like way beyond my comprehension but then actually being up there i like found two of his pitons that he wrapped off of which was really cool i actually the one that he wrapped off of on his first attempt when he got stormed out i found that one and he even made me a little video when he repelled and so i was like oh my gosh this is crazy i'm like the second team to be up there nobody had been up there since mark had and then I was the one to like come upon his pitons as I was climbing the mountain. That was really wild. And then to descend that whole mountain following what he had done years before, hardly anybody has climbed Titanic or Egger in, in general. And so, yeah, we were, that was a really cool descent also. And knowing that Mark had just done it on his own, it was totally ludicrous <laughs> yeah uh, you've gotten my heart rate up literally just talking about it you know and i've done this similar thing of knowing someone had soloed something and then while i'm climbing it i i put myself in the headspace of that even on a rope and it like completely so it's paralyzed me at least once you know at least for a moment and then otherwise like been very very scared i mean even the um the rainbow wall and in red rock you know just there's not even the hardest pitches, but there's some just, you know, moves on that, that I would, I, I thought of, uh, of our boy Arnold up there and, uh, I don't know who else has sold it, but yeah, it's just like Jesus, man. So I can imagine them. Plus, you know, just the catharsis of, of taking on that challenge that he had seen and being up there must've been a moving experience to say the very least about it. And give me so much more appreciation for somebody that I already appreciated so much. Mm -hmm. That was really cool. Mm -hmm. So I made that joke like nothing happened after 2021. And, and, so, and some of these ascents we're talking about were, were in that era. And then you mentioned like reconnecting with um, rock climbing. And, and again, you, like in my mind, Brett Harrington is defined by this alpine climbing. Um, again, also partially because, I mean, it's it's quite a splash. And I mentioned it being a boys club and. And you came in and, and, uh, and, you know, staked, staked your flag and, and said, I'm here and I'm going to do rad things and I'm going to do first ascents. And, and it made you stand out, but you've switched a little bit back to rock climbing and done some, some cool stuff in the last few years. Also within that you've, I think, embraced a little bit more your professional side, doing projects that are being filmed, not just disappearing into the back country and, and coming back out with these stories, which was also a hallmark of Mar Mar a hallmark of Mark Andre's career as well. So tell me a little bit about that shift. Is it consciously away from a little bit of alpine climbing? Is it a break? Are you doing both? Um, are your dreams still in both realms? 
Um, I've always gone through phases of where I feel like I'm lacking that builds inspiration because I know I can grow from that. And I've never been able to fulfill my full potential of rock climbing because I'm always alpine climbing. And I, I didn't really feel like I was ever going to be able to do that because I just can't stay out of the mountains for that long. But I really did want to try and become a better rock climber. And that was my goal is to start sport climbing, to start training, just to see how hard I could climb within a certain time frame. And so, yeah, in 2021, I was climbing El Cap and then um, Mezzogiorno de Foco. I tried Ryu and I got so incredibly close. It was like the most heartbreaking climb I've ever done. Because I was so close to sending and um, then we just didn't have enough time. <laughs> it just came down to that. I needed like three more days. Define that a little bit, um, where that climb is, So what, Ryu, the, what the project was. Because I did want to ta- ask you about that. Yeah, Ryu was an interesting project. Um, I had climbed with Sasha in Tahiti. We did a bunch of, well, I like both did some first ascents and she, she came out and we did like these fun climbs together and she invited me to try this big project in Spain called Rayu. It's um 12 pitches. And it's Is it like uh the Bolnes Naranja is that area or where where is it? Yeah, it's in that in that mountain range, but it's so far away that you can't even see um Uriayu. It's on a mountain called Peña Santa. The Poe brothers put it up with Kiko Serta in 2020, and it hadn't had a second ascent. And so Sasha had planned to go with Matilda, and then it's primarily a trad climb. And Sasha invited me to join them, and I th- I think is mainly because I'm basically a trad climber. And I was like, okay, if I can't free the crux pitches, at least my participation will be in like doing all the trad climbing. And so we go there and actually I ended up leading basically all the other pitches. I put up all the ropes um, for the first. Okay, so the crux pitch is pitch 11. So I led up to pitch nine and then Matilda led pitch 10. And then we put up pitch 11 just like, getting the rope up is mainly bolted as the crux. And then um, then we started working the crux. But all those trad pitches were pretty cool. I mean, trad climbing on limestone 512 is really in- interesting. You don't see where you're going to put the next piece. You're putting pieces in pockets. It's just like finding pockets that you think are, are going to have good gear and then equalizing. And it really reminded me of climbing the Canadian Rockies, which I loved. I love that headspace of it's more technical than just like the pure power of climbing. And then we got to um, red pointing the crux pitch. Matilda seemed like she was going to send it pretty quick. Um, it definitely lends itself to taller people because she didn't have to do this crazy dyno that Sasha and I had to do. Sasha was getting close and I was still pretty far away. But Sasha was so close that she like psyched herself out. And so over the time that she was like trying to get her head back in the game, because she was like so close, it was heartbreaking. I started getting closer and closer and closer to the point where I was like, I can send this. And so um, they ended up sending it and I helped them get to the summit. 
And then we had one more week and I was like, okay, I'm going back. I'm going to try and send it. And I ended up just having like a couple days to try. And I got it on a one hang multiple times. I was like, ah, it's popping off on different places. It wasn't like I was like just falling at the crux. I was falling like making it through the crux and then falling on another. It was just like going to happen at any point And I didn't know when. And then time came and we had to leave. And so that was really crushing, but also like an interesting climb for me to like come so close to success and then fail. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least there's no de- like deteriorating glacier to cross to get to it. So. Oh, yeah. Going yeah, yeah. Back Definitely and, not going back to that climb is, is you know. <laughs> A little more yeah. vacation style than than the Patagonia trip, so it was. It could go my, down, yeah, my goal was just to do the best I could, and I do feel like I did that. And I became a real, like, way better climber by trying it. Because after that, I went straight to Sardinia, and I felt so strong, stronger than I've ever rock climbed. So I think it was good for me. Well, I'm glad that you pointed out like the difference with trad climbing on that stuff, because I mean, we have this conception in North America especially in the States about what track climbing looks like, you know, and it involves a crack that you put gear into and, and, um, why I've, you know, followed the Poe brothers and the climbs that they've done in that region. And they're all, yeah, little manky things and little holes and, um, yeah, it's pretty in pegs. And, you know, obviously the, the, um, the totem was pretty much invented for that stuff, um, that and, and, uh, Montserrat little pebble pockets and things like that. So, but it's, yeah, so it's track climbing on a level that I think Americans don't really think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved some of the lower pitches because there were cruxes and there was gear, but you really had to just keep climbing to find it and not know what kind of gear you're going to get. So I mm-hmm. liked that. Yeah, it's cool. Um, th- so tell me a little then about Sardinia, that climb. Was it in like by the Hotel Supermonte, that zone? Or was it somewhere else? So we first went in September, just our first time ever, and um, tried Hotel Supermonte, and that's when I felt super strong. And I, like, on-sited the 12C and 13A and was fairly close to the 13D pretty quick. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'm coming back to try this because we only just went up it one day. We had just a couple days. And so then we went back in December, but it was really cold. So we tried this other route that was also established by the first ascensionists, Rolando Larker and um, Maurizio Viglia. And it's similar style as Hotel Supermonte, but a bit shorter and it's um, south-facing. So Mezzogiorno di Fuoco is the one that I climbed. And it's also 13D, but it just has one pitch of 13D, uh, a 13C, 13A, 12D. So it's stacked, but it's not as stacked as Supermonte. And yeah, that was the one I tried in December and I ended up sending. And that was so great. I really had a great time climbing that. Um, and then went back to try Hotel Supermonte in June. It was so hot. I could not even climb the 13A because my fingertips wouldn't s- stay on. <laughs> so... That's okay. I've spent a ton of time in Sardinia since then. I'm actually nice, going yeah. back tomorrow. <laughs> oh, cool. Right yeah. on. <laughs> Better time than June. Whose yeah. idea was June? No offense, but. <laughs> well, okay. So Elliot and I started this business. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> well, it was so cold in December. I thought right, like, right. oh, well, it's, it's yeah. North Facing. Well, there's also it's- April. <laughs> April? Yeah, April. Yeah, although it's good. wet. I, I've, I actually have been to that wall and and you know, we would have had to swim mm-hmm. in like, you know, 
tits deep water to get over there. So yeah, it can be wet in there too. I think Federica, she is an Italian climber. She was there in April and I think she sent it sometime around okay. then. Yeah. Anyhow, so back to your story as to your reasons for June. Okay, so we started this business called Ascent Climbing Trips where we like take people on these really beautiful kind of like all-inclusive week-long trips. And so our first one was in Sardinia in May. And it was late May because conditions are perfect at that point. And so our clients came over. We had nine clients on that trip and we guided them for a week. And then I figured I would just stay in Sardinia for the rest of the month of June and try Supramonte. But it got so hot, we ended up just uh, deep water soloing instead. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. How did you sort of discover or, or first get the idea of going to Sardinia? It sounds like it's a place that you'll, you have a pretty good connection to. I want to say it was Elliot who was really inspired to go in the first place. And then my parents were going to Sardinia. And so last summer, I was in Spain with Sasha and Matilda. And my parents were going to Sardinia, and I planned to meet them there just to see them. And mm -hmm. they It's always nice when your folks turn up in a place where there's climbing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So they had gone, and I was going to go to Sicily because Sicily was a place that we would we were talking about to do one of these retreats that we ho that we host, and so we were going to head down to Sicily, but we get to Sardinia, and it was just so incredible that once we left to go to Sicily, we just changed our tickets and went right back to Sardinia, <laughs> and yeah, that's why. So you know this rock climbing. You know, well, let me say this. It, it's interesting because I, I've heard that sort of line of thinking with alpinists, like, you know, I've got this sort of down and, and my rock climbing has, has either suffered or I've never really explored it. You know, I've heard that from Colin Haley, you know, changing over and doing these sorts of things. But also in the back of my mind, I'm like, yeah, but it's also kind of, you know, pretty fun and addicting, you know, the, the thought of going to Sardinia versus disappearing into the mountains, you know, you can come up with all these other excuses as to why you're doing it, but that's also one of them. So with that said, like, what, where's your foot in, uh, in your Alpine dreams these days with you about to leave for Sardinia tomorrow? Yeah. Okay. So, um, I was thinking originally like debating about going back and going to Chile and I was kind of like in and out and I hurt my wrist and my wrist has been injured for over a month and I haven't oh, been right. able you, to climb. You mentioned some injuries earlier in the podcast. Yeah. This last year. So yeah. And so the wrist thing has been so concerning. And at first I thought it was like a dead bone or something. And that was really bad. And that started getting me thinking like, Oh, I really miss the Canadian Rockies. Maybe I should just go up and go ski this winter with Christina. She'll be up there. And the more and more I've thought about it, the more I think like, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. My wrist is healing pretty well. I was, I climbed all day yesterday, which was amazing. And I had an incredible day. So I feel like my energy's lifting my, I'm able to climb again. Um, but I still want to go back to the Rockies this winter. So I'm going to go back, uh, live in Golden. I've got some big alpine lines that I haven't succeeded with, like some that I've gotten halfway up and had to bail. So those are in my mind. But we just have like this huge collection of routes that we want to try and whatever comes in a condition we'll go for. That's sort of our goal. I, I mentioned like your professional career. Um, it's something that you've embraced uh, I mean, since I met you again, you were sort of 
had your toe in that world. You went on a, you know, a photographer. Was it Drew that came with you guys to, to the Riders in the Storm? Yeah, that was Drew. Yeah, yeah. And then Chris Elstring came with us last year. Yeah. So, you know, I remember Drew telling me that he had never seen anyone try as hard as you guys on that, on that wall, um, down in, in Patagonia. He was like super blown away about, um, the tenacity. So, um, I do remember him saying that, but yeah, so you've embraced this, like, uh, you know, this professional thing, your North Face team member. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, one of the things, again, you know, your upbringing in the Canadian Rockies is, is also steeped in that, like, you know, don't ask, don't tell policy of the last 30 or 40 years with, you know, the hard men and some hard women of, of that region are sort of notorious for that. Others aren't, you know, but, um, Tell me a little bit about embracing being a professional climber, the opportunities that have come your way. And then also going on something like the Ryu thing puts you in into the Red Bull world. Um, I don't know if you've gone into that world before, but that's a whole nother level um, that comes with its its pluses. And um, I think I've talked to a lot of climbers that have found significant minuses in that kind of production level. So yeah, w- where do you sort of fall on that? And you know, this feeling of, again, wanting to just disappear into the mountains sometimes, but also now this, uh, I think, mounting pressure to, you know, in the parlance of the times, create content. I think there's kind of a time and place for it. And when it works out, like there's certain climbs that just fit filming, like especially rock climbs are way easier to film than alpine climbs. With alpine climbs, I don't think I've ever really gotten to film anything. Like, I don't know if you saw my Tori Egger video, but that's all just self-footage that we took while on route. And originally, Ted Hesser was going to join us for that. And Ted was busy and couldn't come. And I was like, I don't really know who else I'd like want to join me on this. So we just took our own footage. And so many of my alpine climbs have just been me taking pictures. Like, I, I don't know if you know Tony McLean from Squamish. He and I did this incredible climb on Mount Neptuoc two summers ago in 2020. Uh, I guess three summers ago now. And it was this 720-meter rock climb up this quartzite face. And took us two days to do it. Super committing, 11C, just Rocky's Choss. So cool. One of the coolest climbs ever. And Tony only had like an iPhone 6 and he took like three photos of me. But (laughs) in my mind, that was one of the coolest climbs I've ever done. And if we had gotten documents, documentation of that, people would be mind blown. But no one has any idea about this climb that we did because we didn't really take many photos. I took some of Tony, which are kind of cool. He took a good one of me at the summit, but that climb just slipped under the radar of everybody because we just didn't get it. <laughs> I mean, do you have any qualms about it? Do you do you feel pressure that you don't like to to have content, you know, something like that? It would have been great personally to have pictures too, but um, yeah. you know, wh- where do you lie on that sort of spectrum of like, do I pull the camera out even when I don't really want to kind of a thing? I try really hard now to try and document because there's so many times where I'm looking back and I'm like, I wish I had footage of that. People ask for it and I'm like, oh, it's such a cool memory in my mind and I wish I did. So I try to be really forward with taking photos. But then sometimes I just don't at all. Like Enos, Enos Paparette came out to climb with me in August and we went to um, Shut Eye. Do you know Shut Eye, south of Yosemite? And we climbed this Chris Sharma route, um, 
Trail of Tears, 13C. Just so, so beautiful. It looks like peace. The way it climbs, like, super tech face climbing on the sheer wall of granite. And we didn't get any... No one was out there. It's just me and Innes, and we were doing so much hiking every day to get there. And it was so fun. It just felt like I was on kind of an old school adventure with my friend. And I miss that, too. So that style, I think, is still... It's worth it. It makes you feel good. It's like that's why we're doing this in the first place is because we love it. Not not as our job, but it's become our job. So I guess like some projects I try and engage with video filming project, more official work business. And some it's just fun to do for yourself to make yourself feel good. Yeah. But that one's so cool. We both end up sending it right before there was a hurricane that was hitting California. And so, like, we saw this massive storm coming in. I'd sent it before Innes. So we were like, please send Innes. And she was so close. And she finally sends it. And we get to the top. And the hurricane's, like, just coming in a wall of water. And we got no footage. And so I ended up getting footage um, just using photos of Chris when he was on it. And they're way cooler anyway because Chris is doing the first ascents. Chris Sharma, I mean, that's like the coolest photo you could post, right? (laughs) It's like, yeah, Innocent, I climbed that one. (laughs) Oh, right. (laughs) Yeah, the one with Chris on it. That's cool. (laughs) Don't sell yourself short, Brett. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Pictures of you are cool too. Yeah. So I think, so someone like you, you you have a level of humility. I think it comes from being, you know, in the places you climb, you, you literally don't survive without it um, in a lot of cases. So you may not think of yourself as this, but I, I do see you as a bit of a pioneer um, back to that question of, of stepping into this world um, of hard alpine climbing in the Canadian Rockies. You know, it's a history of, of men to a certain extent, um, you know, with an occasional woman in the history as well. But I see you as a bit of a pioneer, and, and I, I think that a lot of women who, who want to enter that world or, or entering that world or even have been in it for a long time um, look to you for inspiration. Do you feel that? Do you, do you hear from those people? Is it, is it something that you think about as far as your conduct or your, or your, your social presence or your professional presence in terms of someone who's blazed a little bit of a trail for women who want to be, you know, not just in that world, but be sort of self-actualizing in that world. In other words, looking for their own ascents, for their own first ascents, using their own sort of dreams as motivation versus partners' dreams. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's like all these things that I do, I just do because I find them interesting and I like to be creative and it's a creative expression. I think I've put up over 40 first ascents, both Alpine Sport, uh, Trad, Big Wall, everything. So, but I never thought of it as like, I'm a woman and I'm doing this for women. I just think that's something I want to do. And with Mark, we never really, gender wasn't part of it. It was just like, I am me, he is him. Like we were just, we worked well together, but looking back and seeing like what other women are putting up first ascents, there's not that many. And so that alone makes me stand out, not because I'm any different from like Mark or these other men, but I just am a woman. So I never like when I'm doing it, I don't like classify myself that way, but that's just how it is. (laughs) So what would be your 
your now sage advice at uh what are you 30 29 where are you 30. At these days? I'm 30. yeah you're 30 okay perfect time to sage, be sage. advice mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so what is your i mean i would imagine you you hear from from people again women who find you an inspiration um yeah what is your sage advice uh you know maybe as basic as follow your heart i don't know that could be put on a card but um anything anything deeper than that the biggest thing is finding people that believe in you and holding on to that because people get put down by people who don't believe in them and everybody wants to have like control and everybody has their own risk tolerance and so say like we'll just use like me and you for example you know from your own experience what you're capable of and I know what I'm capable of. And so say you're about to go do something that I've never done, I'd be like, whoa, that's scary. And if you were to ask me, should I do this? I'd be like, well, I wouldn't do it. And so a lot of people try and harness like and control what other people are doing. And that is not healthy to be around because nobody knows what you're capable of, but you want to be realistic with yourself. You don't want to exaggerate your ego. You want to be exactly realistic with where you are, um, what you're capable of physically and mentally and not underestimate yourself. And that's what's so special about Mark. I climbed with him for all those years and he saw me for exactly who I was mentally. He like, he knew that I was going to look after myself and that I was going to look after like when we were, we would team solo all the time because he knew that if I came to something I wasn't comfortable doing, I would not do it. And soloing teaches you a lot about following yourself too. But a lot of people get into relationships or they have been brought up in families where they're told they're not capable and they're told they can't do some things. And so their confidence from the start is broken down and they'd never branch out. And so I think be wise with who you spend your time with and select people that are that want you to succeed and aren't fearful of your success. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thank you so much to Brett for sitting down. She agreed pretty much immediately when I hit her up to talk again and uh, was so open and intelligent. I just loved that interview, and I have a lot of admiration for Brett. She's been through a lot, but she's grown, she's learned, she's moved on, is living a good life. I love it. So much more to come from Brett as well. If you want to follow Brett, you can follow her on Instagram. She's at Brett Harrington. That's Harrington with an A. One of the several famously good climbing Harringtons out there. Also, she has a cool YouTube channel at bski 238 or just search Brett Harrington. And finally, check out Brett's all-inclusive, somewhat luxury climbing excursions to Sardinia, Mallorca. I mean, those places are incredible. Go to the website ascentclimbingtrips.com and look at the pictures. I don't know if you have that kind of flow to spend on something like that, but it would be amazing. Great places, great people, a lot of fun, I'm sure. Again, ascentclimbingtrips.com. Okay, folks, send me, please, the core workout of your dreams or of your nightmares. Actually, the nightmare one would be better. Help me fight against the dying of the light 
as I enter my 53rd year in the spring help me maintain. I don't even I don't even really need to get stronger. It'd be great, but let's face it, that ain't going to probably happen at this point. Maintaining school. I hope you're maintaining your psych, your health, your happiness, your climbing, and of course checking your knots. life pushes around. The real deep down you is the whole universe. (laughs) 